And uh, 1 Kings is, is, a, is an interesting book. Really, it's one of the things I've enjoyed about this, this bird's eye view of the different Bible books is you notice things there that you don't notice when you're going chapter by chapter or paragraph by paragraph. You're trying to look at the book as a whole and you see some things differently. You see some things that you might not see otherwise. For instance, the book of Elijah, I gave you a bit of an outline. One of my tendencies here, because I I can only cram so much on a page, well, I use two different colors. I use the gray scale, the faded part over there on the the right-hand side, and that's just to give you an overview of the whole flow of the book. And then the other side is the part that we're going to drill down on and spend a little more time in. But in that gray overview, you see there's... there's, um, one king takes up the biggest part of the book of First Kings. Now, now, the book of First Kings is actually a continuation of First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel, First Samuel shows the transition from Samuel to Saul to David. Second Samuel is all about David. David's life going well, and then David's rule not so well. Talked about that last week. David lived too close to the edge, and it had its consequences. And yet God is merciful. And then that, that history of the kings continues in First and Second Kings. They are a continuation of First and Second Samuel. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Kings is called Third and Fourth Kings or Kingdoms. Because First and Second Samuel are called First and Second Kings. See that? There you go. So, so these books are giving us this history, and First and Second Kings in particular, where we are this week and next, are answering a question, what happened to God's people? What happened? The, these promises are made. They had such a good start. How did the kingdom end up from one united tribe, one united kingdom under, under David, the 12 tribes all, all together under David and his rule, all of a sudden they're dispersed and they're sometimes fighting against each other. And then one goes into captivity over there and the other goes into captivity over there. How did that happen? Why did that happen? These books, First and Second Kings, were recorded probably very early in the Babylonian captivity. Some say by the prophet Jeremiah. These books are written as a history evaluating the kings of the two different kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah after the split, after the great divide, and the northern kingdom of Israel, the other ten tribes that broke away from from David's family as their king. They established their own kings, and they had many of them. Not a one of them was good, by the way. But, but following these two histories of two nations now as they divide, and First and Second Kings evaluates the king and their kingdoms in relation to the law of Moses and how did they, how did they continue in or abandon God's precepts? Did they follow God in his word or did they wander away? And so that relationship between their practice and their kingdom to God's law is going to be the focal point, the evaluation point. Did the kings do good? Did the kings do evil? You'll see that on and on through the book. This king did evil in the sight of the Lord. This king did good in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David. Or he did evil in in the patterns of his father and he worshipped the other gods. You'll see that over and over and over again. Their, Their lives, their their. Their contribution is evaluated in, did they walk with God? Did they follow God or not? 
Now, there's, a, there's an overview. First of all, we start with Solomon. Solomon's kingdom, the end of David's reign, Solomon, his son, his kingdom is established. We see examples of Solomon's great wisdom in chapter 4. We see uh, Solomon, the glory of Solomon's kingdom in his building of the temple and also just to the nations round about. God is glorified in what he has done with David's son and this kingdom. It's not to Solomon's credit, it's to God's credit. God has given him the wisdom, God has given him the wealth, God has given his glory, God dwells in their midst. What a wonderful thing it is for a kingdom then, for a church today, when others would come in and visit and they, and they would say this, surely God is among you. Wow, nothing better than that. And, and, the, and the Queen of Sheba, chapter 10 I think it is, comes and visits Solomon. She says, though the half hasn't been told of what God is doing here how God has lifted you up. But then in chapters 11 and 12, we find Solomon's kingdom is, is divided. We find out why it's divided. Where did the one kingdom of 12 tribes become two kingdoms, Judah and Israel? Judah, the two tribes, David's tribe and one other. And then the other 10 formed their own kingdom separate. They head off and they're gonna, they say, we're going to go our own direction. That happens in 11 and 12. Then you have some transitional kings. We've had a lot about Solomon. We have some transitional kings in both kingdoms in order to get to a focus on the last six chapter is given to one king in the north, and his name is Ahab. Why Ahab? Well, Ahab is interacting with a guy you've heard of named Elijah, the prophet Elijah. But there's something else about Ahab. Ahab is a lot like Solomon. I thought about this as I read the book. As well. Why did, of, okay, I understand why we, why we focus on Solomon in the beginning, but of all the other kings to focus on at the end of the book, why so much on Ahab? He gets six chapters. Why? Ahab is a lot like Solomon. He, like Solomon, is led astray by a foreign wife that he makes queen who brings in Baal worship or false worship, the worship of other foreign gods, other countries' gods, and aggressively instills that among the people. Ahab's just wanting prosperity, security, and pleasure. The very same things, by the way, that King Solomon, David's son, also pursued. He pursued security and multiplied chariots to himself, which God had told him not to do. He, he pursued pleasure, and the book of Ecclesiastes describes his pursuit of pleasure, his pursuit of prosperity. In the end of it, he said it was nothing. It doesn't satisfy because only God can satisfy. Ahab and Solomon were not so different. You know one of the unique differences between Abraham, Ahab and Solomon one of the big differences between the two is Solomon is the king according to the covenant, the promise God made to David. And David said, I'm going to continue that promise because I made it even. I, I'm going to hold Solomon accountable for his drift. And yet, I am going to continue that line because I promised David I would until a better than David, a better than Solomon, we know him as Jesus, will come and reign on David's throne. Still going to happen. So we have said in this book, we have this great divide, and we have Solomon, and we have Ahab. And there's some important, important lessons that you and I can learn from these two examples that are before us today. First of all, we're going to start with the, with the life of Solomon. What Solomon tells us is don't waste what you've been given. 
When you look at Solomon's life, we're going to look at Solomon's life in four ways, and this, these four really kind of show the, the panorama, what happens, what happens with Solomon. How did this great divide come about? And we're going to see, with Solomon, don't waste what you've been given. We're going to see Solomon's heart is devoted to God. Because Solomon's heart is devoted to God, there is a house devoted to God. There's a house devoted to God in terms of the nation. There is a house devoted to God in terms of a temple, a particular building, a house for God that Solomon builds. That God allows him to build, that God blesses his building. Because his heart is devoted to God. His heart becomes distracted from God, and then the house becomes divided. That house, which is the people of Israel, among whom God dwells, that house becomes divided because his heart is divided. So a heart devoted, a house devoted. We had a child dedication this morning. A heart devoted among the parents will lead to a house devoted. In that environment, the the children grow up and they see God's hand at work. Parents wish we could control and determine the eternal destiny in our children, and we don't have that power. But we can give them the best foundation to stand on. We can give them them, the best shoulders to ride on in which they can see farther and perhaps more clearly the working and the grace and the mercy of God. And that's what we desire to do. And when our our own hearts are devoted, that'll overflow and spill out to our house to others around us. So first of all, Solomon, a heart devoted. A heart devoted. I want us to turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to dive in just a couple of places along the way. And I'm using a pew Bible this morning so that if you're using one of those Bibles, you you might have your Bible that you're really familiar with and and wonderful. But if you didn't bring that this morning, you're using one of these Bibles that I'll even give us page numbers as we go just so we can quickly turn and, and, and find it. So 1 Kings chapter 3, but if you're, if you're making notes, I'd prefer you used your own Bible for that because that way you can take them with you. And, and uh, if you make notes in the Pew Bible, then just feel free to take that with you as well. 1 Kings chapter 3, and uh, let's pick it up in verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said to him, Ask whatever you want me to give you. Oh, have you wanted God to say that to you? Have you wanted God to make you that offer? Go ahead, ask me whatever you want. It's, the, it's Solomon's I dream of genie moment, you know? Whatever you want, Solomon. And what does Solomon ask for? Solomon answers, you have shown great kindness to me, your servant. My father David, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son, Solomon, to sit on his throne to this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am just a little child. I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern the great people of yours? You have given me a privilege, Lord, which I am not up to. Will you give me wisdom? More than anything else, Lord, in this which you've set before me, I want to honor you. And God gives him that wisdom. In answer to that devotion of him, now, now God gives him the task as well to build a house. God gives him that privilege. But God tells him in chapter 6 that unless your own heart is devoted to me and the heart of these people is devoted to me, building a temple will not do any good. I will dwell in that temple. I will dwell in your midst. My presence will be in your midst if your hearts are 
devoted to me. If you follow me, if you keep my word, if you walk in my ways, a heart devoted leads to them walking in the presence of God. A heart devoted leads to a house devoted. Solomon builds that temple in chapter 8, verse 22. He, he prays a prayer of dedication to that temple. Here's part of it. Verse 22 of 1 Kings chapter 8, that's on page 243. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. In front of the whole assembly of the Lord, he spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord, God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven below, on the, in heaven above or in the earth below who keep your covenant of love with your servants to continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David. And with your mouth you have, you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it. You said it and you did it. Now, Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a man sit before me in the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all that they do to walk before me as you have done. There's some foreshadowing, some warning, because that's not going to be the case completely with Solomon. O God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. Verse 27, but will God really dwell on the earth? Will God really dwell on the earth? That's what the temple was about, isn't it? God's presence actually in their midst? And heaven and earth cannot contain you, God. How much less this temple, Solomon says, that I have built. That's right, it can't. It's not big enough. But will God dwell on the earth? Oh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he would say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That God himself would, in the fulfillment of that promise to David, God himself would dwell upon the earth. And he'll return to dwell again. A heart devoted leads to a, to a house devoted to God. Solomon's prayer goes on, when we go astray. When we go our own ways, God, and when we remember, and when we pray back towards this temple, he's already anticipating the captivity. When they're taken away, when we pray towards this place, will you hear, will you forgive? When there's, he says, a drought in the land, and the, and the fields don't produce their crops because your hand is against you, because we have forgotten you, and we have wandered from your ways, and when we remember, and when you call us back, and we, we, we turn our hearts again toward you, and we pray toward this temple, your the place of your presence, hear our prayers, Lord, and forgive. You see how important that kind of, of, of reminder to a people who are now, by the time this is written, they are carried away into that captivity. They've experienced it, and they need to know that this isn't the end. They need to know that in the midst of the heartbreak that God is not done with them. And he's not. He's not. No, the son of David hasn't even come yet. There's so much still to do. God's not done with them any more than God has done with us. And already you see the foreshadowings of that. Solomon already in his dedication prayer of the temple, he's already anticipating the mercy they will call on. And God will deliver that just as surely as he brought bread and meat to Elijah by ravens. I'm getting ahead of the story. A heart devoted, a house devoted, but then there's a heart distracted and a house divided. A heart distracted. Look at chapter 11, page 247. King Solomon, verse 1, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. 
Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And his wives led him astray. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. You see, the issue here is not perfection. The issue is I never make a mistake. The issue is not that I will not sin. That's not the point. David sinned. We saw that last week. And yet even in his sin, his heart was devoted to the Lord even for the Lord's mercy, for the Lord's forgiveness for the Lord's restoration. And Solomon's looking, as we saw in Ecclesiastes some time ago, Solomon was looking for love in all the wrong places. And his heart's turned away from God, even for his mercy, even for his forgiveness. Solomon has forgotten his own prayer so many years earlier. And so the kingdom will be torn from him, from his sons. These gods that he followed, it actually, it actually lists them. He followed in verse 5 the Ashtoreth of the goddess of the Sidonians and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites, and also Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab. Who are these other gods? Well, Chemosh, the, the detestable god, as he is called, of Moab, he also, to Moab, he, he, he was some spiritual entity that pretended to be the deliverer and the protector and the warrior god of Moab, even as Yahweh was for Israel. He was sort of a false alternative god. He was like uh, uh, Allah of, of, of Islam would be to Yahweh of Judaism or Christianity. He was another god with a different name, but with similar characteristics, or so it would seem. But the promises were a little different. It was a little twisted. He was a false god. Uh, 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 Ashtoreth was, was a, a, a sex and fertility goddess. Ashtoreth was, was a god of fert, or fertility and prosperity. Now, fertility was very important to the land. This is why Baal worship was so important. Baal was the storm god and also the fertility god because the storm brought the rains. And the rains, the early rains and the late rains, caused the crops to grow. And if you're an agricultural nation with an agrarian or an agricultural economy, when you are worshiping the God of the storms, the God of the rains, and we're saying around here, well, that's the last God we're going to worship. We're sun worshipers around here. Where's the God of the sun? That's the one we... No. It's funny how we, how we, how we pursue something, anything that'll get us what we want, but if your livelihood, if your own life depends on the harvest, a God who seems to promise that will be very attractive especially when at times it, quote, seems to work. That was Baal, and that was the worship. And so all the immorality that went along with them, you see, that, that idea of fertility and prosperity married together became a very ugly thing in its practice. That, that God of prosperity, that God of fertility, that God of the American dream led next to Moloch, the God of the American nightmare. Moloch was the god of the underworld. Moloch was the god of death. And you, you would worship and serve, serve Moab, or, or, or rather Moloch, or sometimes his name was Milcom. You would serve him even by taking 
a child. And it was called Passing Him Through the Fires to Moloch. Sacrificing even little ones. In Psalm 106, verse 36, it says, They mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Our culture pursues hedonistic pleasure in a sex-saturated society. We have turned the fountain of life and a family into a source of death, which leads to the very gates of hell. Our society has been sacrificing even our own children on the altars of, of, of pleasure and prosperity, of, of convenience and planning. Millions of our own children we have killed before birth. Others grow up to harm or even destroy their own lives because too many voices around them have convinced them that anything or everything matters instead of them. We've done the same thing, a very similar thing. Our nation has followed the distractions of Solomon's heart and, dare I say it, there is hell to pay. God forgive us. Solomon's heart distractions are not very far from our own. Perhaps Solomon rationalized. Perhaps Solomon's arranging of these other temples for other gods, even in Jerusalem, round about the temple of Yahweh, which was there on the, on the uh, highest point of the city. Maybe he's thinking, I will show through this that these other so-called deities, demons they be actually, that, that uh, these other spiritual powers, that they are actually in submission to and they serve the true God, Yahweh. Maybe that's what he was thinking. Maybe he sought to actually advance the worship of Yahweh through the power and the wealth and the prosperity of Solomon's kingdom. An error of the flesh, of our own capability, uh, an error of American Christianity is also susceptible to. We can, by our success, convince other people that we are following the right way. It's a spiritual battle, not a worldly one. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not of our flesh. They are not of our ability. They are spiritual, and that's why more than anything else, if we want to see Vacation Bible Camp succeed in the terms of eternal difference in the lives of children and perhaps parents, we need to be praying for those children. We need to be praying for those parents. We need to be praying for those workers that God will use that weak and his word to make a difference, a real difference in lives. That it won't be activities and time spent, but God will bring his blessing out of it. That's the only thing that will make a difference. Well, if Solomon's heart was distracted, I, I can't pass up another application in terms of marriage. Some of you are younger. You're anticipating marriage. Make following the Lord the center. As you anticipate marriage, as you consider who you, so easily we're attracted to somebody. There's chemistry. She's attractive or he's, oh boy. And, and then we've well, we got to find out, but are they a Christian? You know, because that wouldn't be good if, you know, if they're, they're not a Christian. So I need to make sure they're a Christian. And that's kind of the afterthought, the square to fill. Make a passionate pursuit of the Lord, the determinative thing. Because in your life or theirs, that's what will really matter. And you know you find out? You know there's a weird verse in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, hey, don't get married. Don't get married. Because if you get married, you're going to be worried about the concerns of your wife. Or you're going to be worried about how to, how, to, how to care for your husband, and so you should when you're married. And that's going to distract you from following the Lord. I say we turn 1 Corinthians 7 on its head. 
How about husbands and wives? We make the center part of our lives following the Lord. And then that very thing that would be in danger of of distracting us one way or another actually is the thing that pulls us together. That we each, more than the other stuff of life, we determine, I am going to follow the Lord. And there, by following the Lord, that's the thing that pulls us together in our pursuit of God's pleasure. You see it? Who you choose to unite your life with becomes very important because they will, they will run with you in that race or they will distract you. Leads to a house divided. So there you have Jeroboam comes along. Uh, um, he could have also had God's blessing. He's the, he's the first king of Israel, the ten tribes of the north. You see that in chapters 11 and 12, the kingdoms divided. The next several chapters are transitional history, like I said, just to get us to Ahab. So we've had Solomon. We've had Solomon. A heart devoted is a house devoted. A heart divided or a heart distracted is a house divided. And we see that then played out, and so the, we've, we fast forward and we move ahead to what we know about the, the life of Elijah. And like I said, it's about Ahab. It's about King Ahab, but we like this prophet Elijah. And so what do we learn from Elijah? If from the life of Solomon we learn, don't waste what you've been given. Don't waste what you've been given. Don't be distracted from your heart. Then, then what we learn from Elijah is be true no matter what others do. You see, in the days of Elijah, if we're living in the days of Elijah, they're divided days. They're days when the glory of the kingdom has passed. We're living in days of opposition now. These days of Elijah are days when so much of the society, so much of the world is against us if we are going to follow the Lord. And that's where Elijah finds himself. Elijah finds himself in a hostile climate. And yet he determines to be true no matter what others might do. You know, it's interesting. James chapter 5 says that Elijah is a man just like us. We think of Elijah as special. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, it may mean a city, though we can't ever find any such city. It could also, the word could mean Elijah the settler, Elijah the pioneer, Elijah the country guy. Here is this pioneer, unpublished prophet. Have you ever read the book of Elijah? You've got Isaiah, you're Amos, Hosea, Obadiah, whoever he is. But Elijah never even got published. Think about it. Who is this guy? This unknown, seemingly, prophet from the back country somewhere is led by the Lord. And wow, what a story. First of all, in chapter 17, let's jump ahead to chapter 17. First of all, from Elijah, we learn one thing. Know who you are, or rather know whose you are. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17 on page 253. Now Elijah, you know what his name means? Yahweh is God. Or Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is God. He stands in the midst of a country given to the worship of Baal and these other gods, and he says, no, 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 no. Yahweh is God. That's his name. He knows whose he is. The Tishbite from Tishbe in Galilee, or in Gilead, or uh, like I said, it could mean um, Elijah the settler from among the settlers, or pioneers in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, or in whose presence I stand. 
I see my life, I see my affairs, I see my conduct in this world as before the God of heaven, the God who lives, the living God. That's Elijah. Know whose you are. Know whose you are. Because he lives, Baal does not. The God who lives can give life. Baal cannot. That's going to be the test at Mount Carmel, isn't it? The God who lives can give life. The God who does not live cannot give life. Know whose you are. Yahweh is my God. Follow God's leading. Chapter 2, or or rather chapter 17, on from verse 2. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. He tells Ahab, first of all, there's not going to be rain for the next few years except at my word. The Lord came to Elijah and said, leave here, turn eastward, go to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, there you'll drink from a brook, and I've ordered the ravens to feed you there. And they do. The ravens bring him meat and bread. And he's there for a while until the water finally dries up, and the ravens each morning and each night are bringing him meat and bread. He follows God leading. And then God tells him to go from there and to go to the land of Sidon, to go outside of Israel to a land of the Gentiles. And there a widow woman is going to provide for you. Really? You know whose homeland Sidon was, the land of the Phoenicians? That's Baal's headquarters. That's where Baal worship was centered in. That's where it was from. Yahweh says, watch this. Talk about poking an errant demon in the eye. God says, I'm going to send my servant, the one who, who laid out this whole contest, I am going to send him into Baal-centric. And there I am going to provide from him, from, get this, a widow who doesn't even have any means to support herself. Look what God is doing. You see how he's drawing the battle? You see how how he's raising the ante? You see how he's increasing the odds? Elijah follows his leading. He goes to the wilderness first. He goes to Sidon next. He approaches this widow lady, and he even has the audacity to tell her. She says, I've just got this little bit of food left, and then me and my son are going to die. And Elijah has the audacity to say, well, that's okay. Well, just make me a cake first. How rude. And yet, what? He knows God's promise. And he is willing to follow God's leading. And he knows that he is going to be blessed and this woman is going to be blessed. She's not going to die. Her son's not going to die. And then later on, even when he does die, what? God is there. God is in the midst and God does his thing. Elijah lays out on her three times because not only does he follow God's leading, but he trusts God to answer. He trusts God to answer with the ravens. He trusts God to answer even the resurrection of this widow's son from the dead. He trusts God to answer when the time comes again. There hasn't been rain in three years, more than three years, and he trusts God to answer even in the promise of the return of the rain. Well, you know the story of the, of the, of the, of the contest there at Mount Carmel. You know how that plays out and, and how he trusts God to answer that after the, after the prophets of Baal, they dance around, they holler and shout, and they can't get their altar to light the sacrifice is laid out there, and then, God's, and then Elijah says, well, pour some water on, on the altar of Yahweh. Fill up all these barrels. Pour water on there. Do it again. Do it again three times, and then fire comes down from heaven, and whoosh. And the whole thing just ignites and is consumed. He trusts God to answer 
He follows God leading. You remember how we were in the, in the book of, of, of Galatians? And it said there, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us follow His lead. When the Spirit leads, when the Spirit prompts, let us follow His leading. When He says, say something, say something. When He says, help somebody, help somebody. When He says, go here or there, or when He says, give this or that, we can do that. God will provide. We can follow His leading because we can trust Him to answer. I've had, a, I've had a joy the last few weeks to be dialoguing with Kelly Wallstrom as the Lord has been stretching her, leading her. And she's had the courage along the way in the midst of a little arguing, I think, going on as well. She's had the courage to follow God's leading. And I asked her just to tell a, a few minutes of that story. Well, he gave me three, three, three minutes and told me not to make them Bob minutes. That's right, that's actually. right. Um, so this has just been just a really neat um, thing that the Lord has, has brought. And, and first and foremost, um, it's, it's about providing for um, our fellow believers um, and making sure that no one, um, no one in our midst is in need. And, but God doesn't need me to provide for Brian and Jenny. There are people in our congregation and our community that could easily just write the check to provide for them. And, and that would be an amazing God story, but that's not how he's choosing to, to do this. And it's, um, and I, I think it's because he's giving me the opportunity to share his gospel, um, to share his story with people. Um, as, um, as, as this has, has come about, um, it, it's been amazing because he's told me to just tell his story. And so, so that's what I'm going to do. Um, Ryan McKinney preached a sermon on selfishness, which was excellent. Um, and it really got me thinking, and it was, there's more to that, and there's more to this story. Uh, I'll skip ahead. Um, but it got me just really digging into the word again. And so I started reading, I was reading in James and James 1, 22 through 27 says to be doers of the word so that we don't deceive ourselves. And, um, and then it goes on to say that it's like looking in the mirror, somebody who does, who hears the word, but does not do it is like a person who looks in the mirror. Um, but, but then walks away and forgets. Um, and what I've told my kids actually, um, Sorry for the graphicness of this, but it's like having poop on your face, looking in the mirror, and then walking away and not doing anything about it. Um, and so as I'm reading that, and that's going around in my head, um, I then come to Acts chapter 2, where it talks about the people gathering together and breaking bread together. I'm like, oh, we potluck great. Um, but then it talks about selling our possessions so that we so that no one is in need. And I went, huh, huh. I like, kind of like my stuff. Um, but then, and, I, and I've asked Olivia if I can share this. The girls were cleaning their room, and this is really embarrassing, but they had stuff up to here, all across it. You could not see the floor, and they were so overwhelmed, and, they were, and Olivia kept coming down crying because she had so much stuff. 
And at one point, I looked at her and said, I have nothing more to say to you until you decide that obeying me is more important than your own selfishness. Which at that moment, the Lord convicted me of. And talking to her, she doesn't remember <laughs> that I said that, but I certainly remember saying that because the Lord said, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> to me. Um, try to hurry through this. So then she came down another time and was like, I just have so much stuff. And I said, fine, let's sell it all. And I went, oh, and let's give the money to Brian and Jenny. And she goes, who? He's like, Connor's parents. <laughs> she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So from there, it just kind of started, and my brain started moving, and I called the one person besides Jenny, who's really good at garage sales. Um, I called Robin Demeray, and I said, so I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, I just have this crazy idea, and I don't know who to talk to about this, but I know that you do that, do garage sales really well. And she, she on the phone, she goes, you have this amazing way of saying, hey, I've got this really great idea that you should do. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, no, no, that's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. Um, but over that week, I just started to tell this story, this, his story of how he was working. And about a week later, I've shared with, um, and I had shared it with a number of people, um, including the, our pastors and elders, just asking them to pray on how this would all come together. And Robin called me, and I said, I, we were talking, and she goes, you know, she goes, I was just really praying about this, and I really feel like the Lord is telling me that I'm not supposed to help you with this. And I got really excited, because what that told me is, one, that she was listening and obeying the Lord, which was really exciting to me. And the other thing was that if she wasn't going to help me, that somebody else was going to come alongside and help because um, I know my own weaknesses, and I know that I needed extra people to come around me. Um, but she's telling me as she's doing this that she said, Lord, I said, I hear that you don't want me to help, and I'm, I'm good with that, but what, what can I give? And they just happened to be moving. And so, and she just happened to pack up about half her house, you know, with all that stuff that you have that you kind of go, why do I really need this? And she walked into her garage and went, oh, I don't need this, I don't need that, I don't need this, and ended up giving, able to give a ton of stuff. And just as I was telling the story, I came in and was talking to Vicki, and she goes, oh, well, we just happened to be remodeling our kitchen, and I can give this. And, and that was the response I got as I just told the story. I didn't ask for anything. I just told his story. And at one point, I looked at Eric, and I said, I think we're going to need to start praying for a second location. And because I was like, this is just getting, we're not, we're not going to have enough space. Sorry, I think I'm running into Bob minutes. Um, <laughs> and the day before, I had told his dad this story. And I don't know if some of, some of you have been here forever know Eric's dad, and that he lives um, down the street um, on 107th, right, his, his driveway is right across from Faith Center, what used to be the old Living Hope building, and on an acre and a quarter. And so he called us that later that night, Eric and I hadn't even had a chance to really pray about it. It just kind of been one of those things that we threw out there. And his dad goes, well, I got to, you know, I've been thinking about what you said and I've got a few things. 
we got over there and he opened his it, very, very full garage. This man does not throw away anything. I love him. He doesn't throw away anything. He opened his garage and he goes, I want 90% of this gone. <laughs> and I start going, uh, uh, um, okay. So, uh, and Eric just goes, stop. Dad, what she means is, so we don't have to move any of this. Can we have a second garage sale here? And um, from that point, I started going, that night I kind of started going, okay, two garage sales. I'm not good at this whole follow-through execution thing. I know my limits, Lord, and this is not it. And he just reminded me, he goes, Kelly, since when is this about you? Since when is this about you? And as I was praying, I was on my knees before the Lord, and he brought me to Mark 8, where Jesus has just, he's literally just fed the second multitudes, just fed them, and then him and the disciples get into a boat. He's trying to teach them, and the disciples only brought one loaf of bread, and that's all they can talk about, is that they only brought one loaf of bread, so what are we going to do? And Jesus goes, he's trying to teach them, but all they're doing is talking about this, this lack that they have. And the Lord goes, Kelly, why do you keep talking about this? This is mine. This is mine. I am going to take your one loaf of bread and no. multiply it. And that is, it, that is exactly what he has done. And it's just, it's so exciting to me. Um, one other really quick thing is in the midst of this, the very beginning, I had been, um, the Lord had told me that I really just needed to keep it quiet, that I was supposed to keep it um, as big as possible, but as quiet as possible. Um, my original goal was to get through this one, gara this one garage sale um, and just be able to, to hand Brian and Jenny an envelope of cash. Um, that was just, I was just really excited about that. And at one point, um, I was given, uh, at my girls take ballet from, um, from Tasha and, um, at the studio, somebody gave me a bag of apples and bananas and, and, um, and this bag of mini avocados. And, uh, and I have to drive straight home, straight by the Epps every time I drive home. And... I'm driving, and the Lord goes, you need to stop and give half of the avocados to Jenny. Uh, I was like, okay. So I drive past the road, and he goes, <clears throat> uh, turn around. <laughs> so I turn the car around, and I, I drove up, and, and I hand Jenny the avocados, and she starts, and she's talking to me, and she's really, this is right before, I think this is, she was going to get her port in either that, the next day or the day after, and she's really stressed out about the finances. And she did say I could share this. Um, she was just really, really stressed out about the finances. And all of this is kind of churning. And it was still in the very beginning processes. And so I know that this is happening. And I'm kind of sitting there going, I know something you don't know. I know something you don't know. But the Lord just said, you may not tell her. Because her hope and faith need to be in me, not in what you guys are doing. And... Um, Eric and I had the privilege of sitting down and talking with them and um, a couple Sundays ago and just sharing with them the story. And it was interesting because their perspective, what Brian said to us was, he goes, 
he goes, I'm not concerned about the money. He goes, what really excites me is the way that this is changing people's lives. Um, and I have just in sharing this, I have been able to share the gospel with, um, with a Buddhist, with the barista that I went and got coffee with. Um, and, um, even faith center is, is in some ways partnering with us and are going to advertise. Um, and that's a whole another story. If I love telling the story, if you guys want more information, I'm willing to, to share it, but I'm running out of time. Thanks, Kelly. If we could wrap up two, two, two points. Trusting God's leading when you don't see the way, how, how that can work out. And then trusting God to answer. Trusting God to provide. Follow God's leading, trust God to answer. And then finally, and what I put in your notes was trust God for today and tomorrow. What I, how I'd like to say that is live in God's mission. After, after Mount Carmel, inexplicably, after the greatest victory, Elijah then is threatened by Je- Queen Jezebel, the queen who was leading all those Baal worshippers, and he has caused 400 or so of her, of her prophets to be killed, and he has shown this great victory for Yahweh there on that Mount Carmel, there when, when, when God's sacrifice is consumed, and all the people are again saying, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And, and so qu- the queen says, says, uh, may it happen to me if I don't kill Elijah by the end of the day today. And so Elijah runs. He runs. He runs and he keeps running. And he runs all the way out of Israel. He runs into Judah. He runs all the way through Judah to the southernmost city of Judah. Because he's running away from Queen Jezebel and, and her reach. And then he goes from there another 15 miles into the wilderness. And there he sits, he sits down. First he runs from fear. And then he, he, he runs because of his own failure. You see, he runs, first of all, from fear from Jezebel, but then he runs because he has run, because he was not faithful, because he fears he has failed. He's not afraid of Jezebel anymore. He's a long way from Jezebel. But now he's running from himself. And God meets him there. And God says to him a simple question, Elijah, what are you doing here? And the emphasis could be, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be there. He, he feeds him. God buys him lunch. God takes him on that, on that strength 40 days to Mount Horeb. It didn't take 40 days to get to Mount Horeb from there. It takes about 14, I'm told. Haven't hiked it. But 40 days reminds us of God providing for Israel in the wilderness, also 40 days, and he will complete. Even when it doesn't look like it, he will complete his promise. He will bring them into their inheritance. He brings them 40 days to Mount Horeb, there to the presence of God, and he asks him there, Elijah, what are you doing here? He says, Elijah, I have something more for you to do still. I don't want to hear your story. I know you feel like you're the only one left. No, no, I've got 7,000. I'm not losing this battle. This is mine. As Kelly said, this is mine, not yours. I've got this. What are you doing here? I need you to be there because I need you to to anoint another king. I need you to anoint another king over here. I need you to anoint another prophet who will continue after you. His name will be Elisha. What are you doing here? The only answer to that question, what are you doing here? Here, in this world, Ahab's aftermath, if we will. After the great divide, when so much of our own culture and environment is against us, what are we doing here? Well, I am here in the midst of this great divide. I am here on God's mission as God's ambassador 
set among these people, whichever people those are that he has set you among. Ask yourself that question. Imagine God's words echoing around in your heart. What are you doing here? The only good answer is, God, I will be on your mission. You are the one I serve. You are the God who lives. It is not up to my capabilities. It is not by my resources. You are the God who lives. You are the God in whose presence I stand. What I will be doing here is I will live for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for life. You are the God who lives. You are the God who has given us life. Father, we've heard about it even in terms of real story today. A real person. Stretched beyond their own capacity. Father, really, there's something in each one of us that wants that. We want you to stretch us. We want you to take us beyond our comfort zone. We want you to lead us in some place where we cannot provide. And we want to see your hand at work there. Lord, would you do that? Father, as, as ones in this room right now commit and say, Lord, I will go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. God, I want to live in those days of Elijah. And I want to see your hand at work. Father, like you did it then. Like Kelly has tasted it. Lord, would you do it among us so that not we 